Hello, and welcome to Knowing Nature, the podcast all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. I'm your host, Victor. In this episode, I'm speaking with Sarah Webley, Education and Outreach Coordinator at the South London Botanical Institute. We're going to talk a bit about the program that they run there. Uh, Welcome to the show, Sarah. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So, Sarah, it's your first time on the show, so it'd be great to get to know you a little bit better before we jump into talking about the South London Botanical Institute. Um, So what got you interested in nature? Well, I think it took time for me to become interested in nature. I I moved to the States when I was 13, but before that, we lived um, in Lewis in East Sussex. And um, so we always had dogs. So I guess every weekend we would be out taking the dogs for walks on the South Downs. And I I don't remember being particularly interested in nature or observant of it, but I definitely enjoyed being outside with the dogs and the fresh air and going to the beach and stuff like that. I do remember um, sitting with my grandmother and watching the bird feeders. She lived down in Cornwall and um, we would sit out there and watch the different birds coming to the bird feeders and she would tell me what their names were. So I think I got to know what the different garden birds were and their sounds quite early. But I think I wasn't, I definitely wasn't one of those children that spent hours outside looking under rocks, collecting beetles, bringing things into the house. Um, I think when I first became interested in nature was when we moved to Baltimore and I was at secondary school and it was the first time the sciences were taught separately into biology, physics and chemistry. And I had a a brilliant biology teacher who, um, I mean, she was just great and, and finding out about the living world all around us and not specifically nature, but just sort of like learning how our bodies worked um, what the inside of a frog looked like, kind of, you know, having, you know, greenhouse, ga- greenhouse gases explained. Um, I definitely then became interested in biology for sure. And um, I then chose to do biology at university pretty much because of that teacher. And um, I, again, loved it at university. Um, and in one of my um, botany tutorial groups, we were told, or we were asked to read the book, The Gaia Hypothesis by James Lovelock. And um, I just I just loved that book and the whole concept, the whole concept of the, the planet being just one giant organism and, and everything that's on it, um, whether it's the physical side of it or the biological side of it, just all working together to create this this giant organism I, that I thought was so cool so I think that was when I became properly interested in in the planet especially in the climate and um, how we all contributed to to that that my hypothesis so I think I, I came to it slowly and um, I mean I then became a biology secondary school teacher myself worked for the you know the British Science Association so I definitely became interested in nature through biology. And now I'm, I'm, you know, I'm learning more about plants and bugs and all the things that maybe a lot of people did when they were a small child. Now you're at the South London Botanical Institute. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the Institute? Yeah, sure. The Institute's been around for a long time. It was founded in 1910 by Alan Octavian Hume. 
He was out in India for a very, very long time working on the great tea hedge. Um, He came back from India in 1910 and he set up the institute in an old Victorian building in Tulse Hill. He wanted it to be a place where anybody of, of any age, background, level of interest with um, botany to be able to come and learn more about plants and fungi and he so it's in this within this Victorian building we've got a beautiful garden we've got a a herbarium that is full of the original um, cases that Hume built to store his dried um, specimens we've got a fantastic library and um, yeah we just it's a real gem of a place to come and visit and I think people are always very surprised when they come in through that front door because it just looks like a regular house from the outside you know what we have on offer um, for people to come and enjoy yeah and then you walk in the door and it you can see the layout of it is still a house and yet it's also a botanical institute it's amazing I, i love the herbarium room yeah so let's dig into what you do now could you tell us a bit about the range of programs that you offer yeah we have a fantastic schools program which for the last three years, we've been running a program called Botany on Your Plate, which was, is and still is sponsored by the City Bridge Trust. Um, within that program, Botany on Your Plate, there's a, a program, sometimes there's two programs um, for each year group. And it's all to do with edible plants. The whole point of the project is to learn more about edible plants and the plants that we eat um, and how important those plants are to us and how important they are to the the climate and the the planet. So we have the schools program, which is probably the most popular program in terms of numbers, that is. We have an adult program of speakers, which is on a wide range of topics, um, suitable for complete beginners, ranging all the way up to those people that are, you know, pretty pretty advanced in, in their botanical knowledge and plant identification. Um, we've we've moved a lot of those, well, pretty much all those talks online for the last year, which has been good and bad, but um, we'll, we're going to carry on that program, but we will resume having face-to-face um, talks as well. We run workshops, workshops on fungi identification, workshops on on um, creating dyes from plants, inks from plants. We have um, an art and drawing sessions that take place place in the garden and within the, the library. There are walks organised um, in local green spaces and also further afield. Um, Roy Vickery, who's our, our president in the warmer summer months, you know, is running one or two walks a week that people can join in. You know, and you can learn more about urban botany, street weeds, um, but you can also go into um, cemeteries and find out about the wildflowers that are growing there as well. And actually, a new program that we're going to start this summer is um, a summer school, a three-day summer school for 16 to 18-year-olds. So that should be really exciting. That's to try and encourage people of that age group into, you know, plant-related industries and careers like horticulture or, you know, plant science at university um, or conservation-related careers. Um, So, yeah, we're always looking to expand the program and, you know, reach age groups and groups that we haven't had much contact with before. 
So let's dig in a bit more to the program at the South London Botanic Institute. Um, What would you say is the most popular program that's on offer? In terms of numbers, um, the school's program brings in the most numbers, um, the biggest audience, um, because under normal circumstances, you know, we would have two schools, maybe in the very busy uh, months, three schools a week coming in. It certainly brings in the most diverse audience as well. And it, we know it's popular because we get great great feedback from the teachers at the end of the sessions. And you can see that their the teachers are enjoying it and thinking this is good. But you can also see how much the children are enjoying it. I mean, they're really, they're wowed by the, the building. From the moment they walk in, they're, they're almost sort of hushed a little bit when they come in because it's quite old fashioned and there's a big clock ticking and they, they just sort of say, well, you know, do you live here? and um so they love it and we run three within their session they would do three very different activities one of them is in the garden where they get to explore the plants they have to look for certain things within the plants um all related to whatever topic they've the school's chosen they would then do an art related topic in the library and then they would do usually with me a more education focused one where we we spend a lot of time looking down microscopes so the whole thing's really exciting they get to be in the garden um which is you know in in the summer it's it's absolutely jam packed full of plants and it's quite magical it's there's very narrow paths that you have to go down to get places um so it's quite a sort of magical secret garden but the, the library is very old fashioned as well. And I think it's quite a nice calming activity to come and sit down and then do some some proper observation and, you know, try some of that quite old fashioned botanical illustration where they really look at seeds or or stamens or, you know, um, roots. And, uh, and then the microscopes, they just love because most of them have never used a microscope ever, including the teachers, just their faces when they get to when they finally get to see what they're meant to see in the microscope and it comes into focus it's a real you know wow and if there's a if if we're looking at a sage leaf for example and there happens to be an aphid on there then it's like oh wow amazing and everyone has to look at it and um so I think it's a very it's a very exciting program and it kind of offers something for everyone within the class if you like artwork then you've got a little bit of that if you like the more sciencey stuff then we've got the microscopes if you just like being outside looking at the frogs in the pond then we've got a little bit of that too so I, I think it is a very it's a very successful program just in terms of the logistics it's uh, there's three parts to the session do the schools come on half day or full day visits is that how the day would run yeah they would come for about two and a half hours in total because obviously they need to get settled at the beginning and you know and at the end as well so that we spend about half an hour sort of up to half an hour in each of the activities and then there's time to move around as the education officer I would run one of those activities but we we rely heavily on volunteers and we haven't we have a a fantastic group of volunteers volunteers that have been there for a really long time so we know that they enjoy doing it as well um and they're great because they come from all different backgrounds and you know we have volunteers that are really brilliant artists so they usually do the art side of the of the activity you know i don't have an artistic background so i wouldn't necessarily be the best person placed to do that activity but we have people that have you know really you know that work out in the garden who who know the plants and the medicinal side of plants and the um you know the folklore of some of the plants 
we couldn't do it without our volunteers. So we are eternally grateful to them. And I just think it's it's great because then the kids also interact with with people that have got different skills and come from different backgrounds. They all they all enhance the program for sure. If we go through a bit step by step, the first bit you mentioned is um, they go and sort of hunt around the garden. Are they recording things? Are they collecting things? Um, are they just sort of looking? What are the kinds of activities that the kids do out in the garden? Okay, well, it, it depends on the year group and what the program that they've signed up for, for example, the year two habitats program, they would be going out there and they're given a clipboard with a sort of um, a worksheet on it. If if it's um, very young ones, it's often just a, a trail or, you know, something to see. Can you can you find a leaf that's um, furry or can you find um, a, a stem that's spiky? Um, so they would just go and complete their their sheet and they might have to draw little things on there or write something and um but if they again going back to the, the year twos doing habitats they would go and have to look for different habitats within the garden and um they would also then have to have a little look and see what's what's in those habitats like we've got big compost heaps so they'd have a little dig around for worms and bugs and beetles and we've got a pond uh, we've created wood piles you know we've got a lot of moss in the garden so it really it, you know and if you as you get older um if they're learning about classification we would maybe get them to look at a, a range of different plants and then decide either with their partner or, or in a small group how how would they try and classify those those different plants into different groups to try and order them and make a bit more sense out of them so it really depends on what the topic is for the day you know if you're doing pollination then you would spend a lot of time looking at plants and the different stamens and um, the different ways that the the plants are are pollinated Um, so yeah it very much depends on on what the program is and then the next step is an art-based session in the uh, in the library you mentioned. What are the kinds of um, art activities that, uh, perhaps if we start with the, the year two habitats, what activity would they do in the library? Okay. Um, well, usually in the library, because a class is divided into three, so you have about 10 children in each um, activity, um, which is great. It's such a nice, manageable, I mean, coming from a teacher that used to you know work in a classroom of 30 sometimes up to 32 kids going down to working with 10 was just heavenly and um so you'd have 10 children in the library and you would normally start together around a table and you'd look at a tray of stuff um and with the habitats one we in the library we focus on the food chains aspect of that topic um so we would pull together a tray of different um plants and you know obviously i can't get all the animals and stuff in there but i'd have pictures of the the different organisms and they talk about how they could join up and then they move to the larger table in the library and um in the middle of the table we normally have a, a nice display of of plants and fruits and um you know different examples of of things that could be within food chains within our garden and then they they usually have a little booklet and they would they would draw their own food chains they all leave with something that they can take back to the school when they when they go back to school at the end of the day they've got um something from each activity that they can take back and put up they can either make a display on a wall or put it out on a little nature table. 
so from the garden they would have whatever um trail or worksheet they were completing which is normally very visual um so you could put it up on a wall um and then from the the library they would have their piece of artwork that they'd done and um and then from the education room with the microscope they would also leave from something from the education room as well yeah so from the habitat workshop they would leave with the food chains that they'd they'd drawn Sometimes with programs like that, where it's intended that the work be brought home with the kids, and it's always nice to have those bits because it's sort of like um, it's evidence of what they did on the day. So it's that you know the teacher can point to that um, when talking to administrators or parents and say like, yeah, the field trip was was definitely worth it. Look at what they produced. Um, but sometimes the work, the students themselves don't necessarily want to take it home. Uh, if you know what I mean, like very often like worksheets and and things that they filled in, particularly with older groups, you know, you tell them to take it back to school with them, but the kids tend to leave it. Whereas sometimes the work that you produce, the kids definitely want to take it home. Which side of the scale do you feel like the work that you give the students tends to land on? The trail from the garden, obviously everyone has the same sheet but I guess it's a visual memory of what they have looked at in the garden and they've then added to it. So it was something that would be something they could take home. And when their parents said to them, how was your trip to, you know, they could say, look, this is what we looked at. And then they, they can talk about it. I guess it would be more of a trigger because often when you just ask a child to remember something from, you know, I remember even with my own children, you know, how was, how was your trip to Kew Gardens? And they're like, fine you know what did you see oh you know and then but this could be something that they they show their parents because you can actually you know see the pictures um i think the the artwork one you know obviously it depends on how the children feel about their artwork i mean i know that when i was a child i always thought all my drawings were awful and um so i probably wouldn't have wanted to show them off too much but some kids are absolutely amazing at art so I would I would think that they would want to go home and show their parents what they'd drawn. But I think the thing that um I mean when we do the microscopes, they they create a, a like a little yellow card of we normally have time to look at, you know, three, four, sometimes five different things under the microscope. It depends on how, you know, they learn very quickly about how to, you know, put the specimen under the microscope and and you know move it up and down so it's focused. But we would we stick the things that we've been looking at on a card, and underneath it we write sort of significant words that we you know we remember that were important um, from looking at that specimen. And um, so I I think they really appreciate those because they're quite small, and on there they've you know they've stuck on seeds or leaves or you know like a decay a decay, decaying leaf that um, you know so that would definitely be something that they another stimulus that they could talk about um I do know what you mean though I think a lot of stuff just goes home in book bags and gets forgotten and I mean as a primary school teacher I can remember you know some book bags is just you know stuffed full of stuff that's just been put in there and never taken out the sticking things on the small cards could really appeal to the like collecting instinct that a lot of kids sometimes have you know they want a little a little token of something to take home with them. And I can see that fitting in really well because it's kind of a, it's very personalized. And I can see what you mean about the habitat 
the drawings as well that they've made because I can see some kids if they're not if they're not pleased with what it is that they've done you know if they don't have that kind of self confidence in in their work they they might not want to take it home whereas other kids might be super proud of what they've done no matter what it looks like and so they want to keep it yeah i mean i think maybe a better example would be if if when they're doing um you know sexual reproduction in plants and we're looking we you know i've got a whole range of of different plants and within within each flower the arrangement is very different and and they may never have had a proper really close up look at within flowers so i think sometimes it's not always just the um the actual artwork but it's the having the 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 close up um observation you know where you're really having a a very detailed look um inside i mean you know you may just normally go well, that's a nice flower and just walk past it but actually if you look at it properly you can you can see all the you know the nectar's guides you know the spots that can be with inside petals that guide the the bee or the pollinator down into the plant you can see then the, the nectaries where the nectar's made and um so even if the picture's not that great they've they've spent that time to properly have a look inside and understand um what's going on in there and and why why that's incredibly important to the plant and to us really because we wouldn't have any food if that process wasn't going on yeah drawing i always find is is one of those things because it if you're trying to replicate what something looks like you need to look at the details of it so with doing an exercise like that even if a, a kid doesn't like their own drawings having gone through the process of making the drawing is sometimes the main value of it anyways yeah i think um i think drawing and sketching and and coloring can be very therapeutic and and calming and i think sometimes when they've come in from the garden they can be a little bit hyped up and so it's quite a nice more of a sit down activity um you know, when you do the microscopes, again, you have to be very careful, you know, because the microscopes are expensive. And if they, they fall off the table, then they'll break. So it's all about doing it properly and being considerate of, you know, other people that are also trying to look at a microscope next to you and, and, and also being patient, saying, you know, you, you might not see it immediately because a lot of them get quite frustrated. I can't see it. It's not working. My microscope's not, not working. And, you know, and then helping them to figure out how to do it and you know by the end of the session you know they're, they're such fast learners they've um you know they've really got they've they've realized that even if you put even if it worked it was in focus before if you change the specimen just because of the nature of if it's size and shape you're actually going to have to refocus again and um so yeah there's lots of skills they learn with the microscope so the the class is split into into three groups so there'd be 10 uh, in the microscope session at a time, I guess. Do they get one each? Are they sharing microscopes? Yeah, they do. They get one each. That's what's great. Everyone gets their own microscope, and um, because they are in a nice small group, you know, they have they have space as well, you know, and have space around it so they can do their writing and and um, sticking onto their card. Yeah, we're fortunate yeah. that we've got enough microscopes for everyone to have one each. I mean, even the teachers get really into it. Sometimes the kids like. Can I have my microscope back, please, Miss? 
Yeah, and it's one of the benefits of of um, splitting a, a class up into those smaller groups. Is it means that they don't need to do the sharing of of microscopes because you know it's it's so difficult to organize an entire class set of microscopes and just set up, pack down, cleaning, checking. 30 microscopes would take so much time. I could see it basically only being possible to have one each at a place like the uh, SLBI with with the smaller groups. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what's good is that even if you're year one and you come, you get to use the microscopes. It's not just that we give it only to the older children. We let the, the really young ones have a look. They may not get to look at so many specimens. They may only get to look at a couple of things, but they still get to have a look. And do you use binocular or monocular uh, microscopes? We use binocular. Yeah, much easier than the the monocular. Yeah. What would you say is your favorite session to run? I do love the schools program. And um, within the schools program, I, I like all of the programs. But I mean, we do offer workshops in the holidays as well for families and children. And I really love those as well, because there's a whole, there's a different feel to it with the schools program you know it's like half an hour each activity you've got to keep an eye on the time got to make sure each each one's moving around but with the with the family workshops the children's workshops in the holidays we always have an, an agenda and they're always advertised as being something very specific like the easter workshop i'm running is going to be creating sowing seeds to make herb gardens and shoe boxes and, and stuff. But I always in, in try and add in other things like, you know, we have this amazing pond and we've got, you know, smooth newts in there. We've got frogs. And um, I, I don't mind if they want to then go and, you know, getting excited about the pond. So there's a much more relaxed feel to it. And if, and if, if and if we're enjoying something, then we can spend longer on that. We don't have to kind of go, come on, come on, next activity. So I do, I do enjoy that, especially in the summer when you're you're just outside for the in, the entire time, and it's just you can just enjoy being outside. I mean, actually, there was one one day I did in October. I actually ran the session twice. I did an apple day because I love, I absolutely love orchards, and um, so I wanted to celebrate Apple Day. So I created this whole workshop where I got. Um, I think it was six or seven different types of UK apple. They had to guess which apple was which, and they had to you know to smell it, feel it, taste it, look at its shape and its size. And um, you know, we we also did apple printing. We made apples into because it was also around Halloween, so we made some Halloween monsters with the apples. It was a whole sort of celebration of the apple, and I absolutely love that. I'm definitely going to do that again. How did you make apple monsters? We mutilated them <laughs> and we um, we added things like cloves, berries. I mean, I spent ages collecting stuff, cones, different types of berries, thorns. They were fantastic. They made some, you know, brilliant monsters and we left them all outside for people walking past to have a look at them. But um, yeah, that was really good fun. Instead of a pumpkin, we just used apples and lots of other things all totally natural things that you would you would just find in the in in the woods um to decorate them so and did you were you just sticking materials into the apples were you using anything to kind of stick it all together no i I had some toothpicks actually that was Mm -hmm. the only thing i had toothpicks and then we, we used scissors to make the holes that you could stick berries in and cloves i used um but just you know their imaginations were was were great 
Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah, I um a couple of years ago, again, around Halloween time, a couple educators who um they're quite into folklore as well. So they dressed up as these kind of Victorian um kind of like paranormal naturalists and they set up a little display in in a log cabin with like beautiful watercolor illustrations of um monsters from folklore, but the craft that we did was creating forest spirit specimens i guess again out of just natural materials that you would find lying around pine cones seed pods dried leaves that stuff like that and then sticking them together to create these little kind of pixie elf kind of forms and then um, i had bought a whole load of glass jars so you would put your your creature then into this glass jar and you kind of have this like victorian cabinet of curiosities like specimen that you could go home and have on a shelf and you have this weird stick pixie creature yeah yeah, and we had, you know, we had a good look inside the apples as well, and you know, to uh, explain that you know the apple came from the the flower, and you know you can see where the where the original flower was, and I'll definitely be doing that again. Of the full range of programs that the SLBI runs, is there one which you feel is the most effective program or experience um, that you guys offer in terms of promoting? you know, pro-environmental attitudes or behaviors? Well, in the schools program, one thing that I always like to do at the at the end of the session when we're sat down together at the end, it's the end, everyone's come together at the end and it's, you've got five, 10 minutes before they, they head off again, is, you know, to try and talk about why today was relevant, you know, and why um, it's, is important to you know to care about um, the plants that we've been looking at, all the habitats we've been looking at, and and to talk about that some of the some of the problems that um, these habitats have, and you know the biodiversity within those habitats, um, you know what's happening to plants. Um, and and just talk about um, and kids have already heard quite a lot about it so they often bring quite a lot to that conversation and say oh yeah you know I heard about this kind of thing and then we can talk about simple things that we can do I mean I try and incorporate it into the session as well simple things that they can do you know either as an individual or that they could maybe go back to school and try with their teacher or you know even go home and talk about with their families and say you know I I, I don't want us to waste so much food or um, I want us to think about you know, buying um, fruits and vegetables that are, are seasonal and not not buying, you know, strawberries that are grown on the other side of the planet in the middle of winter, you know. Um, so I think in the schools program, we definitely try to bring that, that, that home um, at the end of the session. Um, so whatever we've been doing that day is placed in context with, you know, what's happening in terms of the, the climate. I, I don't try and make it overwhelming or, or scary. I try and make it positive, you know, to say this is, um, if we all do these small things together, it can make a really big difference. And, you know, even if just one of you does it, it would be really, it would make a difference. And um, um, I, I think, obviously, with the adults' talks, there's a lot of conversation about um, habitat destruction and conservation. So that's naturally talked about a lot. Um, I mean, something that I would 
like to explore more at the Institute is um, I think that in young people, especially sort of teenagers, there is quite a lot of eco-anxiety out there and they're just bombarded with um, depressing stories about, you know, no, there'll be no coral reefs by 2050 and, you know, we're, we're losing this number of species every year. And I think it would be it would be great to try and come up with something where young people were given a chance to talk about that and then offer a way of of um, maybe small steps that they could do to try and, you know, make them feel less anxious about it or feel that they they are doing something about it and that they can do something about it. Um, but that's definitely something to explore for the future. Um, I wouldn't we don't have one specific program that is just about making a difference to the climate it's a, it's a message that we try and incorporate into everything that we do you know even within the institute we try and make you know e- use eco-friendly everything we don't use plastic spoons we would use wooden spoons or paper cups and um, we recycle everything um, so we try and hammer home the message all the time yeah and in in terms in terms of with the school sessions, those what can you do talks at the end? Is it a planned part of the session? I guess because I I know that at other institutions and depending on the type of lesson, you know sometimes the focus really is on a particular curriculum topic, and then kind of at the end of the session, you tack on this this little conversation at the end of like so we've learned about this topic like how does this relate to this environmental issue you know so it's not really a formal planned part of the session sometimes it just is something that the individual educator like tacks on to the end of the planned session well i mean it i would i would always have five or ten minutes at the end of the session to be with the children and, and go over what what we've learned that day and then with at every session i at the end of every session i would make sure that there was some sort of climate action message at the end so i guess it is always at the end of the session and um you, you know it, it will be maybe talked about a bit during the sessions but obviously we need to focus on whatever the, the topic is as well um but yeah i would say that it's is you know at the end at the end of each session i would allocate five times to talk about something like that that I want them to to take away and and sometimes they stay for lunch and they eat lunch there as well and so we bring out the different bins and say right you've got to put your plastic waste in here your food waste in here and your recycling stuff in here um and um so we but that would only be if they were, if if a school had actually booked to stay for lunch um mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it, it's a. It, I would say it's like a timetabled five minutes at the end of the session. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's part of the the, the wrap up of the, of the sessions. Yeah. 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 I mean, I have, I have a for each topic that we do. I have, you know, what a, a specific thing that I'm going to talk about um, at the end um, for each year group. So I know yeah. in advance what it is I want to talk about it with them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there any, so what the South London Botanical Institute, obviously a big focus is going to be on plants. Is there anything the SLBI does that you feel um, is particularly effective at tackling 
what's what's kind of termed plant blindness you know that's the the tendency of people to just miss the plants in their local environment um well i suppose all the talks pretty much are all about plants so that is all we kind of talk about um but i, I um i'm trying to think if we do something specifically for for plant bias i mean i suppose in the last year because um there were a lot more street weeds because they were they were spraying a lot less um and there was quite a bit of publicity in the press about um these street weeds popping up and um <clears throat> so yeah we did there were we did have a lot of talks about that and a lot of roy's walks were looking at the these these plants that were popping up within pavement cracks and little holes in walls so that we did try and encourage the don't just walk past these what look like scrappy little weeds um when you're out on your daily walk you know let's stop and have a look um because they're actually really quite intricate and really quite beautiful and, and they're very important to you know native pollinators and so i guess then we we tried to make people you know take a real interest and 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 notice um the smaller plants that were that were popping up all around us um yeah and we've always tried to encourage people to take an interest in urban botany not just the trees that are in the park but the the other ones that are are you know native wildflowers that are just growing in cemeteries and you know unused parts of um you know housing areas and um yeah, yeah. I mean, urban environments can be such a can throw up some really surprising things just because you know there's so much material coming in from all over the world in in a big city from food and from you know garden plants imported from places you get a lot of funny things popping up in cities and um guided walks i've always found are also a really good eye-opening experience i've not done any with the slbi but i've gone on a few other ones like fungal forays so looking for fungi in the autumn i've been on a foraging walk and those have always been super eye-opening because you've got this expert leading the walk a walk that you could normally do yourself right it's usually it's just a walk around a park or as you say around a neighborhood and then you've got this knowledgeable person pointing out the little things that are hiding there yeah and the good thing about roy is is he doesn't just roy vickery who does a lot of our plant walks um he he doesn't just know the plant and know how to identify it but um you know he's he's studied the kind of folklore and the myths um, behind these plants for a long, long time. So he can actually tell you like what people used to used to think about these plants or what they were good for. And and some of the stories are fas- really fascinating. And he'll say, you know, and, and, and he'll even say in the north of England they thought this, but actually in the south of England they they would have called it this, and it and it would have been used for something different. And he also will say that you know this plant came over from from Europe, um, you know, fifty sixty years ago, but it's now very you know very common here. And um, so he can add so much more to it, not just you know this is this is what the name of this plant is. Um, yeah, so he really enriches the the whole. The program and i think that that brings a whole another level of interest to it 
Yeah, that um, whole field of eth- ethnobotany, which is um, the ethnographic study of botany, which is um, sort of cultural meanings and how people understand and what the people believe about plants, is is so fascinating because it does add this extra dimension, this extra flavor to what can often feel like quite a um, bit of a stodgy science, unfortunately. Bot- mm. Botany kind of might have that that opinion. Um, a good resource for that, I don't know if you've encountered it, is a book called Flora Botanica by Richard Maybe. Yeah, I have. Yeah, it's a lovely book. In that whole series, there's Flora Botanica, Bugs Botanica, Fauna Botanica, and then Birds. But they all are about that. There's a little bit about the natural history of whatever organism it is, but it's more like a a collection of um, as you say, like the folklore about these things. Um, and often it, it talks about how in different parts of the UK, you know, different names for the plant or the insect um, and different stories associated with them. It's fascinating resources. Yeah. And I love things like, you know, when they say they, oh, they would bring in a small bouquet of this and put it on the mantelpiece and it would, it was meant to be, you know, good for for various things but there's also some like horror stories in there as well like this one would bring bad luck to the mother-in-law and ooh, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a fabulous dimension to get kids hooked into it right so yeah. they just get you know interested in in the plants from from those stories uh and then you know dig into some of the science from that it's a, a different angle to approach it from certainly yeah 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 so are there any other final um, uh, aspects of the SLBI's programming that we we might not have touched on that you'd like to talk about? I would encourage everyone to go and have a look at our website. We have all the upcoming events are on there. There's a ton of free resources you can download, especially over the last year when we haven't been able to, to run face-to-face activities. I've come up with a load more of, you know, the, the free downloadable resources for teachers or parents um and you know we've got pictures of the herbarium and the garden um there's lots to there's lots to look at on the website sign up for our newsletter we'll write to you each month and tell you what's going on and and we link into other interesting articles and activities that other organizations are doing so it's a good way of staying connected with what's going on within london are the talks um are they open to anyone to join so at least the streamed talks yeah, they're there for anyone. There's a there's a wide range of talks on there. We, you know, we try and we've we've even started with doing some plant mindfulness sessions, and so anyone can access those. They're normally done on a donation basis. They're run over Zoom, and they normally run for about an hour. Excellent. So for anyone who's listening, those talks are open to anyone, and I, I encourage you to check them out because there's some really fascinating ones and sort of fortunately, because they're now streamed online, you could tune in from anywhere around the world. Because I know a lot of our listeners are, are um, based in North America, actually. Yeah, we've, we've had more. That's one of the pluses about running our talks online, is that our, our numbers have gone up greatly. I suppose before people would have had to take public transport and get down to the South London Botanical Institute. But, you know, we do have listeners from America regularly. Um, we had a talk recently on... Um, conservation in South Africa so we had a lot of South Africans tuning in and that's great you know because obviously you all get to talk together at the end and um and have there's a question and answer session we're going to carry that on regardless of whether we can we we start face-to-face talks 
Well, thank you very much, Sarah, for for taking the time to talk to us. It's been absolutely fascinating. And it's the South London Botanic Institute does so much for um, such a tiny physical space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are. It's a, it's, a, it's a really lovely little space. For links to more information on the South London Botanical Institute and their calendar of events, uh, check out our show notes. And full show notes for every episode are always available on our website, which is knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. And if you've got any questions or comments, uh, send them in to us. The email address is knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at kn underscore podcast, where I retweet uh, environmental, educational resources, activities, ideas, etc. Thanks for listening. <laughs>